of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. And welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Thank you for joining me today on this journey. And we have reached a point that I have thought about since starting this project. We are here today in Psalm 119. Um, I will try to make this as brief as possible. But Psalm 119, as Psalm 117 has the distinction of being the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119 is, in fact, the longest. Um, It is a psalm uh, that is an acrostic. It is an acrostic of 22 stanzas, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, There are eight poetic lines of each stanza, and they all begin with the same Hebrew letter. So whatever Hebrew letter that stanza is on, each of those eight poetic lines begins with that letter. Obviously, this doesn't happen in our English translation, but in Hebrew, that's the way it is. The number eight uh, can be connected with the eight Hebrew words that appear throughout this psalm concerning its main theme. And these words are loosely translated as law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, and word. And in five stanzas, all eight of these Hebrew words occur, and in every stanza, at least six of the eight occur. So obviously this is a, uh, this should be read as a poem. Uh, When you read scripture, there are different ways to read and interpret scripture. There are narratives, there are historical chapters, there there is poetry, and, and many of the Psalms Uh, are composed as poetry. And so, while the psalmist here expresses his love for the law and his desire to obey it, he also recognizes his failures. And you see this throughout this lengthy psalm. Um, So there are elements of lament and petition, and they are intertwined with expressions of confidence and innocence. And so, the law is a faithful expression of God's character. God sent his son to keep the law for us. The law no longer condemns us, setting us free to accept it as our own guide for pleasing the one who died in our place. When we talk about the law, uh, Jesus Christ himself said that he came to fulfill the law. And now there are many who would um, ascribe to the uh, threefold tripartite division of the law in the Old Testament the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. Uh, The problem is, and and I'm not saying that is wrong, Um, there is some legitimacy to that. The problem is, when you read the law in the Old Testament, the law is the law. And so it's it's very difficult to to distinguish. When you read the various laws of the Old Testament, sometimes it's kind of difficult to decide, is this a moral law? Is this a ceremonial law? Is this a civil law? And my point is, in in Old Testament times, if you broke the law, you broke the law. It didn't matter if it was civil, ceremonial, or moral. And and, and so this is not to 
uh, diminish one of the three. That is not the point at all. If it's in Scripture, it is important. So there are those that might, um, in, in arguing against Christianity, say, well, why don't you accept every part of the Bible? I actually do accept every part of the Bible. you know. But their, their point is, um, so you say that homosexuality is wrong, but yet you probably eat, uh, eat shrimp. And uh, my response would be, absolutely, I eat shrimp, and it's very good wrapped in bacon. Um, so why do, we, um, why do we not obey the laws that, that command us not to eat shrimp or wear mixed fabrics? But yet, um, we, we think that homosexuality and those types of um, sins are still applicable to today. Uh, my answer would not be, as some would argue, the tripartite division of the law. In other words, that the moral law still applies, but the civil and ceremonial law are, um, are not applicable to us today. That is not, because I believe that when Jesus came to fulfill the law, that he did fulfill the law, and we are set free from the law, period. Okay? So, so why do we believe that homosexuality, and that's just one I'm using as an example, there are other examples, why do we believe that that is wrong? Because there are laws in Old Testament and New Testament times that are transcendent as a part of, or opposite of, God's character. They are transcendent through time. And then there are laws um, that are applicable only to that time. Uh, the law of homosexuality, that that is wrong, that that is sin, that is transcendent through time. It is not one that was applied just for a specific people and a specific time, as eating crustaceans would be. Um... So understand, when I say that Christ fulfilled the law, I am confessing and telling you that, yes, we are set free from the law, okay? I am not saying at all that the laws do not apply to us. What I am saying is that we are set free from it, and what that means is that we are no longer under the law. But here's the other side of that. As a believer in Christ, someone who is being progressively sanctified, your life will reflect the one who has fulfilled the law. In other words, your life will reflect that of Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law. So even though we are not under the law, our lives will reflect the character of God. So this is a lengthy explanation. Why am I getting into this? Because Psalm 119 revolves around the law, the word of God. That is the central theme. That is what Psalm 119 is all about. So to further discuss this topic, um, and there are many that would argue that the law is not the entire Bible. That the law would be the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That would be the law. Uh, which I completely disagree. Um, there is great evidence, and I will not get into biblical, biblical canon here, um, but there is great evidence that even the apostles in the New Testament church were using other portions of Scripture as authoritative, equally as authoritative as the Pentateuch, if you will. And so the entire Bible, the Word of God, is the law. And yes, certainly there are times in Scripture when it was referring to the law, it is referring to the Pentateuch. 
Um, but there are times when the law is referred to when it, it means the word of God. So the other question is, well, what do we mean by the word of God? The logos in John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The logos is referring to Jesus Christ. And so there are some that would argue when you talk about the word, you're talking about Jesus. You're not talking about the Bible. And there are, again, there are cases, in many cases, where the Logos refers to Jesus Christ. But then there are other cases where the word is referring to Holy Scripture. So, without getting into too much detail about that, understand that here in Psalm 119, the word, the law, we are referring to Scripture. Why is this important? The, the canon of Scripture that we have has been... Uh, tried and tested through time. And again, it's an interesting topic to study if you want to study uh, biblical canon and how our text came to be. Um, I believe that our Protestant Bible is the Word of God. That is not to say that it would be, um, it would be invaluable or that it would be uh, bad to study um, the Apocrypha or even the Pseudepigrapha uh, I just do not consider those authoritative. I consider our Protestant Bible that we have authoritative. So, set that aside. We are here in Psalm 119 referring to the Word of God. So Psalm 119 revolves around Scripture. I will obviously not read this text. It is incredibly long. The musical setting is 37 minutes. Um, so uh, this could be over an hour-long podcast. I'm just telling you that right now. Um, in the musical setting, you will hear uh, 22 different sections, and each one uh, representing the, the 22 letter, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each section is denoted with a triangle ring. So you know you are entering a new section, a new poetic eight lines of text. So let's get into my commentary on Psalm 119, and I'm just going to pick bits and pieces of Psalm 119 that stick out, and as, as I mentioned, I will try to be as brief as possible. There's no way to be very brief in this. But here we go. Psalm 119, the first verse, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So the, the word walk, this is a metaphor for the activities of daily life. In other words, it's not that God is a priority, but he is your everyday life. So the law or the Torah here, the Pentateuch, refers to the first five books of the Bible as a unit or to the legal sections of those books. And so here, the latter is meant, the Ten Commandments and the other laws of the Pentateuch. So this is a case where the psalmist is referring to the Pentateuch, the law. Uh, the Pentateuch, those who are um, uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, and this still happens today, an Orthodox Jew would often memorize the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek them with their whole heart. The psalmist is not speaking of a mere external adherence to the law. He calls for obedience that comes from a deep-seated faith in the Lord. And in verse 4, you have commanded your precepts. God entered 
into a covenant relationship with Israel freely out of grace. And within that relationship, God gave them his law to obey. So he was not asking them to earn his favor or pay for their redemption. It was the way of thankful obedience for those in covenant with him. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Worship and obedience requires knowledge of the scripture. Not just knowledge, but obedience. But how can you obey that which you do not know? That is why we have the word of God. That is why we have holy scripture. There are those that might dismiss parts of scripture, but if we have it, it is important. You ever read scripture? Uh, say the book of Numbers, and you're reading lists of names and numbers and thinking, man, this is not very important. And then there are times where we subconsciously write off portions of Scripture as unimportant. The, the thing is, if it is there, it is important. Even secondary issues. You talk about election, Calvinism. I'm a Calvinist. Um, you know, that is a secondary issue. And so by secondary, I do not mean unimportant I mean secondary. It is not salvific in nature. Uh, but there are important issues in Scripture. If it is in the Bible, it is important. In verses 9 through 16, this is another stanza, the psalmist seeks, uh, seeks to keep his way pure by meditating on God's law. I like um, how uh, Thomas Watson refers to meditation not as an emptying of the mind, but a filling it with the things of God. Often we think of meditation as emptying our minds. And Thomas Watson, the Puritan, would say that it is a filling of the mind with the things of God. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. God does not hide from us what is uh, what pleases him. He states it clearly in the Bible. You want to know what to do to do God's will? Look at the scriptures. In verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. There's a deep connection between striving after moral perfection and the realization that the quest itself is impossible without God. How often do we as Christians even if we've believed and preached, or say we believed at least our entire lives, that salvation is by faith, is by grace through faith alone in Christ, and yet we come up with some wacky way that salvation is by works. Accept Christ. You have to make the decision. Salvation is passive. Not only that, but when we realize, and we say this all the time, I do at least, that um, we can do nothing apart from God. And how quickly we truly realize that when we are brought to rock bottom. When we're at our wits end and there's nothing else we have but God, we quickly realize that all this time I could not do it on my own. Even though I said it, I thought I could, but I really can't. Verse 17, he says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. In other words, the psalmist's life depends on grace. Verse 18, open my eyes. We need God's grace to illumine his word. He has to guide our understanding. For us as believers on this earth, that's why we have the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our guide, our protector. 
Verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. I'm reminded of Hebrews 11.13 that refers to us as strangers and exiles on earth. And that is why I, um, I try not to refer to the place I live as my home. Sometimes I fail at that. Uh, but how often do we refer to this earth as our home or our house that is our home? We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are not home. Verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt. So the psalm goes beyond praise of the law to, peti to petition for God's grace in distress. Verse 29, put false ways far from me. So the psalmist here sees that if left to himself, he would be walking in ways contrary to God's law. That is, when I tell people, um, that I do not believe in free will, but I believe in choice, they say that's the same thing, and it's absolutely not. Free will implies that we control that choice. But our choice, and our natural choice as humans, is always going to be sin, period. We do not have any capability whatsoever of choosing righteousness. Totally incapable. As Paul Washer says, it's not that just that you have sinned, it is that you have never done anything but sin. We are, that is our nature. If we think of sins as these individual things that separate us from God, we think of it in the wrong way. We need to think of it as a nature that needs to radically change and can only happen with Christ. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So he resolves with his whole heart and his mind and his strength. And so he expresses his deep devotion to the Lord. He loves the Lord and he wants to be obedient. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14, 15. In other words, there's no, you may keep my commandments. It's possible that you will keep my commandments. Jesus said, you absolutely will keep my commandments. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, matching his positive desire to move closer, uh, closer to God's law. There's a corresponding negative desire to turn away from worthless things, particularly idols. And then in verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me. God's love and devotion to those in covenant with him. Verse 45, I shall walk in a wide place. By keeping God's laws, the writer here will be liberated from slavery to sin. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. He's referring to that given through Moses and contained in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. So the poet's portion here is not an inheritance in the land, but the Lord is himself. I actually set Numbers 18 
uh, a couple verses in Numbers 18 to music several years ago. And it says, Lord, you are my portion. And how often do we seek God's hand rather than his face? In other words, we seek what God can do rather than God himself. And how wrong of us to do that, to use God like a, a genie in a bottle. So the psalmist here is saying, God, you are my portion. My obedience to you is out of a heartfelt desire to please you. Not just to get what I want from you. Verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you. So obedience to the Lord takes place in community with other believers who also serve the Lord. And that is why the local church is vital. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. So God uses distress and suffering in our lives to bring us back to him. I've experienced this in my own life. Perhaps you have too, where we are disciplined because of our turning away and God brings us back to him. If you are disciplined, be thankful. That is evidence that you are his. You belong to him. God will not let you continue in sin. And then the psalmist continues in verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. And so in retrospect, the writer is thankful for his suffering because it has led to a new intimacy with the Lord. Verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. And so because he has been looking so long in expectation, my eyes long for your promise. Verse 83, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. This is a striking metaphor, and it's really unparalleled anywhere else. The smoke damages the wineskin. This is comparable to the harm the writer has suffered at the hand of his enemies. Psalm 119 um, is not attributed to any particular author. So it's very difficult to distinguish what perhaps the psalmist was going through during this time. But this metaphor uh, describes a very serious condition. He says in verse 84, when will you judge those who persecute me? So the poet expresses that he expects God to come to his aid and punish those who perse persecute him unjustly. And God's seeming delay is a trial for him. And then we see this word precepts in verse 87. I have not forsaken your precepts. So the psalmist would not allow his obedience to depend on his situation. Have you ever been in a situation where you pray, God, if you allow this to happen, I will serve you all my days. And uh, I hesitate to admit that for many men, that is in the middle of a sports game. At the end of it, you know, your team's really close. God, if you let them win, I promise I will do whatever you ask me. <laughs> Many men have been there, trust me. And he says, I will not forsake your precepts. It says in verse 97, oh, how I love your law. So he loves the law because it comes from God, his Savior. In other words, it is derived from God. It is God he loves, first and foremost, and so he loves the law that comes from him. Verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. His enemies rebel against God and reject the law, 
refusing the insight that God, their creator, can give them. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. The psalmist doesn't mean this as a boast, but as an emphatic expression of his devotion to God's law. How true is that today? We are in the midst of June, so-called Pride Month, and sadly a devastating celebration of the flesh and morally sinful behavior. What perhaps used to be a joke to some people is quickly becoming a realization that we are living in a, a morally corrupt and bankrupt society, and God's judgment will come. I truly believe that. But how often is the gospel perceived as foolishness to those who do not know Christ? And this is a similar situation here. I have more understanding than all my teachers. How many in our society are incredibly educated, incredibly intelligent, have skills beyond anything we could ever imagine? And and I'm really thinking of university professors here. But how far are their hearts from God? And even without the uh, seeming intelligence and the uh, skill sets and the, and the credentials, someone who follows God, someone who loves God and his word and obeys God is infinitely wiser than those. Verse two, 102. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. So the psalmist does not claim to study with superior intelligence or even superior determination. He attributes everything to God. And then we have this familiar verse that many have heard. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When you get to this portion of the musical setting, uh, you might think of the Michael W. Smith, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. The setting I have set is very similar to that. In fact, the tune is very similar. It's not exactly the same, but a little similar. Uh, I borrowed a little, few key elements from that. Um, but God's revelation provides the insight to guide the servant, so he will not trip in the darkness, because God's word is a lamp to his feet and the light to his path. Verse 109, I hold my life in your hand continually. So the psalmist's obedience is not risk-free. It exposes him to the wiles of his enemies. And so he could wish to be free of the danger, but he's more concerned to live a godly life in spite of it. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded. He is of a single mind. He loves God and his law. Consequently, he is stable, unlike the double-minded man. James 1.8 says he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his laws. In other words, the psalmist is singularly focused. Verse 119. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. That is the waste of that results when metal is melted. And so when the wicked are similarly cast off, the righteous man remains as refined silver or refined gold. (laughs) 
Then he says in verse 124, Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Again, we've seen this phrase in the Psalms. This is the devotion that God shows toward his covenant people, demonstrating his mercy and compassion. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. So it's not clear whether the writer refers to the initial act of revelation, the process of interpreting God's word, or applying the law to his heart. Perhaps all three are intended here as a single process bringing light, hope, and understanding to the dark soul. The point is that the unfolding of the words of God, the word of God, is beneficial for those who are God's people. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant, similar to Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water. Psalm 135, in verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant. This is similar to the Aaronic benediction. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Verse 145, with my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord. So the psalmist is a model of fervent and honest prayer to God. Psalm 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. The, the poet's first thought as he awakens is the Lord. I don't think the time of day, as many times you see in scripture, early in the morning I will rise to meet you. You see this. I don't think that's as significant as the point is that from the, the time the, the psalmist wakes up till he goes to bed, the Lord's law is on his mind. I'm a night owl, so um, I am not going to say that early in the morning I am going to rise. Now, maybe early in the afternoon, that might be um, more applicable to me. Verse 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. So the psalmist expects that God will bless him because he is obedient. Keep in mind, he doesn't do this for the blessings. He does this out of the overflow of his heart and the, his love for the Lord. And so such an attitude could be presumptuous. A sin in the book of, Go, of Job guards against it, but it could also rise from faith. If he is doing all he does out of the overflow of love in his heart for the Lord. Verse 154, plead my cause. This phrase comes from the courtroom. It is a legal phrase. And the psalmist here asks the Lord to intercede for him before his enemies. This is very relevant to us as believers in the new covenant because we have one who intercedes on our behalf, who pleads our case. That is Jesus Christ, the mediator. And then he says in verse 156, Great is your mercy, O Lord. I'm reminded of Lamentations 3.23. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And this is another scripture that I have set to music uh, several years ago, Lamentations. Verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. So the opposition of princes indicate that the psalmist is probably a powerful per her, uh, person, perhaps the king of Israel, as some of the psalms reference. And it says, without cause. Those who are in Jesus Christ, we are reminded, will face persecution. It is a guarantee. If you're in Christ, 
You will face persecution. If you are not facing persecution, you must ask, what needs to be different in my life? Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Obedience is not an onerous task for the psalmist. He follows God's law because he wants to. Verse 169, give me understanding according to your word. This line sums up one of the major themes of Psalm 119. The desire for insight into God's will so that the writer can act in obedience. And then in verse 170, deliver me according to your word. Another major theme of the psalm is summed up. The psalmist's need for deliverance. Verse 175, let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. Once again, an indication that the poet was in the midst of trouble at the time that he composed uh, this song. Verse 176, the last verse of Psalm 119. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Remember, Jesus goes after the one. He leaves the 99 for the one. Here's what is interesting about that. Many people look at that. Uh, there's a popular worship song out that discusses that. It references Jesus leaving the 99 for the one. And there are many that would say, well, that's, that's illogical. Why would someone do that? And that's how much love Jesus has for us. The problem with that sort of mentality is that's what a shepherd was expected to do. When Jesus refers to the shepherd going after the one, leaving the 99 and going after the one, he says, who of you would not? In other words, this is expected. <laughs> this is not something that is out of the ordinary. Okay? Because a shepherd is expected to care for every one of his sheep. That analogy really is more symbolic of God's love for all of his people, rather than just one or the 99. Every one of them equally. So he says, seek your servant. The psalmist concludes by invoking God as his shepherd. Remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he begs him to bring him back into the flock. And what will keep our lives on the straight and narrow? The word of God. We have every tool and every resource that we need in Holy Scripture. Um, there is a term, it is called a presuppositionalist, and I am that. Um, a lot of people would not ascribe to that, even believers, and I, I, I'm not saying they are living in sin by this, but what I believe is that everything we need, and Scripture says everything we need for life and for godliness, um, I will say that everything we need, period, is in Holy Scripture. Okay, um, And a lot of people use that when they refer to, uh, when they're thinking about counseling, for example. Uh, I'm not saying it is wrong to get training in counseling for a counselor. You should absolutely do that. But the foundation, everything that you need is in the text of Scripture. Everything we need, no matter what the problem is, no matter what the issue is, a presuppositionalist presupposes that everything we need is in Scripture. 
And that is why Psalm 119 is so vital to our life because it is, it is no coincidence that it is in the center of the Bible. It is in the very middle of the Bible. And the theme is love and care for the word of God that commands us, that guides us, that comforts us, that convicts us. God has given us the word and it has been preserved for centuries in the church. And we have it today. It is amazing what scripture has gone, gone through despite many people, even world leaders, trying to stamp it out of history and yet we still have it intact. And yes, you can talk about the, um, the nuances and the, uh, um, uh, the, the things, the uh, discrepancies, if you will, in Scripture. Um, the thing is, we don't have the original text. We have copies of the original text. But it is what we have. And um, there are some differences here and there, but largely everything is intact. And so, yes, I am... Uh, proposing that every word of scripture is infallible, that it is perfect, that this is not the words of man. Even though humankind wrote these words, God is the one who wrote it through them. And if you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and his work in Christianity, you should believe that. So what we have here is Holy Scripture, a sacred book. Never take it for granted. There are places around the world where you can go to prison or die for having a copy of God's word. And we carry it in our backpacks, on our phones, and take it for granted. There are tribes, there are peoples around the world who do not have access to the word of God in their own language. And here we are taking it for granted. People are giving their, literally giving their very lives for the word of God to be translated into their language. And here we are in English arguing over secondary points and trying to figure out whether or not the word of God is real or not. It, did it come from God or did it not? It did come from God. It is from God. It is living. It is active. Don't take it for granted. And Psalm 119 is derived from that idea, a love for sacred scripture, not because of just, not just because it is sacred scripture, but because it comes from the one who created the universe, God himself. When we talk about Jesus Christ being the Logos, the word, why is he referred to as the word? Scripture is derived from Jesus. He is not derived from scripture. What I mean by that is the scripture, the Bible centers around Jesus Christ. And so when I say Jesus came to fulfill the law, it is because he is the law. He is God. He is the one who spoke it. I'm reminded of the Chronicles of Narnia when the white witch utters um, something from the, uh, uh, the deep magic and, and, and Aslan says, don't quote the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the one who gave it to us and how amazing that we have the very words that he spoke. Love the Bible, love the word, study it, know it inside and out. And you will never know it all, but strive for it, pursue it. The knowledge that you have leads to God changing your life. And he changes lives 
through the word. So as I've mentioned a little bit about the musical setting, Psalm 119, like I said, it is 37 minutes long. So this is over an hour long podcast with the musical setting. And there are 22 different sections. Uh, They are denoted by a triangle ring at the beginning of each section. Um, Differing styles, and they, they vary throughout the setting, different keys, different modes, So, you will get the idea here for Psalm 119. So, here is the long-awaited Psalm 119 set to music. Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. in your
I'm a living, keep your word Deal with your servant graciously Open my eyes to know your law That all its wonders I may see I am a stranger here on earth Hide your commandments, not I pray Your ordinances I desire And ache with yearning every day The proud accursed you have rebuked From your commandments they have strayed Remove contempt and scorn from me Testimonies I've obeyed Princes against me have conspired Your servant ponders your decrees Your testimonies are my joy They are the ones who counsel me
Your commands to keep, I can't. 
not forget Because your statutes righteous are Keep your statutes blameless 
Just judgments come from 
foes have shunned Because your words are very pure Your servant loves each one Though I am lowly and despised Your laws are not I cry with my whole heart, O Lord, answer me. The things you command I will do, I cry out to you, give salvation to me. And I to your love will be. My eyes are open as night watches pass That I may reflect on your word Oh Lord, in your love hear my voice when I call Revive me Straight from your love far away Oh Lord, you continue to be near to me How truthful is all you command From your testimonies I always have known Set them always to stand. My grief, regard and rescue me, for I do not your law forget. My cause, defend, redeem my soul. Revive me yet Rescue is far From wicked ones For they stand
Salvation, Lord. 